welcome to Accident Conversations with Burton and Morgan. I'm Alicia. And I'm Mary. And we are sharing content that supports and empowers parents and teachers. Good afternoon, Mary. Hi, Alicia. So we're back at it again. Yes. Over the phone. Yeah, still with the phone. I don't know when our library is going to open. I've been watching their website. They said pretty soon, but they have to figure out how to uh, make it work. So hopefully. So we'll just do this until then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll do it until then. And we have chapter um, five, letter five. You need to tell me every time I say chapter instead of letter. Letter five, the raising of children in a digital age. And I just kind of wanted to let listeners know that this letter is also about um, some of the research behind what's happening and what could happen with brains and kids' understanding and memory and learning. And then the next few chapters, we're going to get into what Dr. Wolf, Marion Wolf, the author, says um, some things that could be done, some things that are important for kids. So I just wanted to let people know that this is the last chapter of sort of background and understanding studies and what's most recent in learning about the brain and digital um, learning. And then we'll get into the stuff people always want to know, which is what do you do about it, right? Yeah. Okay, so she has three questions that guide this letter. I'm going to go ahead and present those to the listener. The first question is, will the early developing cognitive components of the reading circuit be altered by digital media before, while, and after children learn to read, in particular, attention, memory, and background knowledge, which we talked a lot about in a previous podcast. So then the second question is, If they are affected, will such changes alter the makeup of the resulting reading circuit or the motivation to form and sustain deep reading capacity? So will the brain be changed and or motivation to use deep reading? Will it be affected? And then the last question is, what can we do? That's what everyone always wants to know. What do we do about it? What can we do to address the potential negative effect of varied digital media on reading without losing their immensely positive contributions to children and society. And I have said it every time that we've talked about this book, and you've said it too, this is not being presented as an either or proposition. Uh, Marianne Wolf loves technology. She uses it proficiently herself. She does not ever put us in a position of thinking that we need to go backward um, to a non-digital time, but she wants to know, she asks the question, what's happening to our brains and what can we do about it once we know? So that being said, what grabbed you? Well, it's funny you use that with grab because she starts off with talking about how uh, reading in the digital world actually is made up to grab Mm -hmm. attention, especially attention of young children, young readers, and how we are able to kind of, like I talked about in the last letter, kind of walk away, take a break, and then come back. If you have not been taught to read like that, to to read for long periods of time, and to actually have your, your reading pathway set for a sustained amount of concentration in reading, then you don't have the ability to stop and go back. Young young readers are not having the opportunity to fall into a book to have that sustained attention and time given when their attention is, is being grabbed from all of these bells and whistles from books online and, and all of the characters who are animated and talking and making noises, their their attention is quite limited. And we see that in classrooms as well. Um, and, and there's a reward system for them to see new 
items online. Yes, absolutely. And I thought it was really interesting about this RAND report she talked about from 2015. I bet you have that highlighted, don't you? Yeah. The average amount of time spent by three to five-year-old children on digital devices in 2015 was four hours a day, with 75% of children from zero to eight years old having access to digital devices, a figure that was up from 52% only two years earlier. And in adults, the use of digital devices increased by 117% in one year. And that's five years ago. That really does give us a foundation to think about some of these terms that she uses. And I just think, like, just saying the terms out loud really give you the picture. She says... Continuous stimulation, nonstop distraction, grasshopper mind, spasmodic, um, hop from point to point, distracted, attention flitting, task switching, and then novelty bias, which we also talked about last time. But all of these things bring us unknowingly into an addiction loop in the brain's novelty centers where we start getting these rewards for new stimulus. And then that is to the detriment of our prefrontal cortex, which is where all the inhibitory systems are and executive planning. You know, we know, you and I know very well, because we have teenagers and young adults under 25, that that prefrontal cortex doesn't really form all the way until um, the mid-20s. And so for kids to be having a less of a chance for it to develop early, that's concerning to me. Well, and yeah, she also says that free frontal cortex wants to stay on task yes. and gain the reward of sustained effort and attention. And we need to train ourselves to go for the long reward and forego the short one. But I, I think students have to be, and kids in general, have to be taught and given opportunities to do that. We, we see that more and more. She talks about attention a lot and how they're just at the mercy of of one distraction after the other. At the mercy is exactly how she describes it, isn't it? And we know that the companies that make tools, online things for kids to interact with, they know what they're doing. They know this research more then parents know it and teachers know it and just the average person knows it. They know how to grab attention and keep attention and that there is, you know, a monetary reward for that a lot of times. So it's going to be hard, I think, to really get that message across and have people understand that it's making a real change without us realizing that it's making a change. And like she said before in earlier chapters, maybe it's not bad. Maybe it's not a bad change, but at least you need to know about it and then decide. You know, not to just be in the dark. Um, right. The whole thing about the um, addiction loop, she talked about the continuous hyper-attentive state, which we defined in the last chapter, that uh, multitasking creates a dopamine addiction feedback loop, which is effectively rewarding the brain for losing focus and for constantly searching for external stimulation. And that is something that is clinically diagnosed now, is when a person has that addiction to stimulus that's provided by a screen and again I think that's that's really something that we see the effects of but maybe we don't really know how we're feeding into it as well Mary I have right by that um, I have written next to that quote wow explanation mark in capital letters. yeah wow because it's scary it is scary it is scary and then the other thing this is so much in this chapter but another claim from a study by the last name of the person is Levitin L-E-V-I-T-I-N you know if you get the book all of this research is meticulously cited 
But um, according to that same study, kids, when they are chronically accustomed to all of that stream of competition for their attention, that their brains are bathed in hormones like cortisol and adrenaline. And those are associated with fight, flight, and stress. And we, you and I both work with and have worked in schools with large numbers of kids who are living in poverty. And these are the things we've learned about the same effects for kids being in acute chronic stress situations, that they get these hormones that bathe their brain in cortisol and adrenaline, and then that makes it very hard for them to pay attention and to remember. And now here we are finding out the same thing can be happening with kids on screens. That Sorry, just so stunned so me. Go ahead. Those students are in that mode already. Yeah. Fight, uh, flight, or stress. And then what happens to calm them down or give them a break? What are they given? They're being put on a computer or given an iPad, right? Right. Now, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's either a reward system or just, okay, you need a break here. You can have the iPad for five or ten minutes and and, and then come back and join us. So that, yeah. that was tough to me, me being aware of maybe having another, some other options for, for when those signs occur. I think maybe that... Maybe the iPad with a party in that, you know, fight, flight, or stress mode may not be the best option. Yeah, I can agree with you there, and I've been guilty of doing it, you know, because oh, sometimes sure. those kids that you're talking about, they don't want you to give them a book. They don't want to draw. They, you know, they're, they're overwrought. And so you think, okay, maybe... Here here, do you want to play a game on the iPad for a few minutes? But I think we're getting better at the social emotional learning and we're learning how to help kids do breathing exercises, to do some maybe some yoga moves. We have a sensory walk um, down a hallway in, one, in my school where kids can go and like follow the path in the hallway and do different movements to calm themselves. I think that that's hopefully another strong option coming back to help us not to be relying on screens. I think that's, I think that's great. That's yeah. a good idea. Yeah. What did you think about the I'm bored part? Did that make you think of anybody? <laughs> Wink, um, wink, <laughs> yourself, your, your kids. <laughs> yeah, I hear that all the time. Yeah. But I'm bored. I'm bored. I did like how you talked about there's, there's different levels of yeah. being bored. Mm-hmm. Of boredom, and that if we don't allow children to just be bored so that they can tap into their imagination, mm-hmm. into their um, creativity, that, that it prevents them from wanting to explore and, and create these real-world experiences for themselves, particularly outside of their rooms, their houses, and their schools. And to me, what that makes me think of is those are opportunities for them to gain that background knowledge so that they're able to apply that in new situations that they encounter you know when they read yes you're right the background knowledge the empathy all of yeah. that it's all tied into that and so we have to be bored a little bit it's kind of, I kind of related to that productive struggle you know that students have to be able to to struggle a little bit they have to be bored mm-hmm. a little bit so they're able to use their imagination and, and creativity to entertain themselves yeah I mean we've we've had to do that we've I remember doing that as a young kid, being bored, and I just had to figure it out. And I mean, even as adults, we get get bored. I'm guilty of picking that phone up when I get bored. I was just having this conversation with my kids, my grown, you know, teenage and young 20-year-old kids, that I never feel like I get bored. I feel like, you know, I can always think of something to do that I want to do. I mean, once in a while, if I'm like waiting in a waiting room to go to an appointment and it's extra long sitting there and, you know, all I have is magazine, old magazines. And there's, of course, those moments, but 
most of the hours of the day, I don't worry about how to keep myself occupied. I just have a lot of things that I think about and want to do. So I don't know. I remember being bored sometimes as a kid, but my parents were kind of old school where they would say, go entertain yourself. Like my mom literally used that phrase, go entertain yourself. <laughs> Gosh, I did. So this worries me, especially that part you just read where they said, it could deanimate children in a fashion that prevents yeah. them from wanting to go and explore. And I think, okay, but we also have kids we need to think about who are in unsafe situations in neighborhoods that their parents don't feel comfortable. The parents might be working. They ask the kids not to go out while they're gone. So what are the options for the kids? I don't know. I, I can see some reasons why that could be linked to safety. But sure. I, I think there's a lot more kids not going outside than than that. I do. I see it in my own neighborhood. You know, there's a lot. When the uh, quarantine first started, I mean, I didn't even have never seen half the kids that were up and down the streets, you know, on their scooters and their bikes and everything. It was really nice to see everybody coming out because they didn't have anything else to do. They were not being entertained on screens and they couldn't go anywhere. So they were playing outside. Right. And I, and I wonder how many of those kids do, because I know, I know what happened for me, having to kind of teach and be online during the non-traditional instruction, that I didn't want to be in front of that screen any longer. Oh, you felt that way? I felt that way. I just wanted to shut it down and run away from it. it. Yeah. And so I wonder how many of our our kids were like that too, that they had just had enough. Like it was too much screen time. I had a lot. Uh, I have heard from kindergarten parents, especially like six years old, maybe seven, first grade parents. Those seem to be the parents. And this is completely anecdotal, just talking to parents. Because when they find out you're a teacher, they want to tell you, you know, all about their experience with um, online learning that we just had here. And they've said, the youngest ones have all said, I could not get my kid to do all the work they were supposed to do on the computer and they say it like they're really worried about it and they're apologizing about it and I keep telling them you and everybody else with a five and six year old you know they weren't really meant to do all their work on a computer right I even think some of the older students in our school I was on some of the zoom meetings with some of them during the NCI and they you know these are kids that would beg you know to use the Chromebook or Beg to get on technology of some sort, and they were just tired of it. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. um, and they wanted to be back back at school. I think it was the little kids, though, that were kind of like staging a rebellion. Like, the, my son was the same way, not really. He was sick of it. You know, he's a freshman in high school. He just met people. He didn't want to be home, like, doing all his stuff on the computer, but he still did it. I think the little kids kind of said, no, I'm not no, doing right. it. You know, yeah. they just said no. <laughs> so, But I think it's because, you know, they do crave that real-world hands-on. Yes. You know, experience that, that book in their hand or that that the paper and the the heaviness of the pencil or the crayon there's there's something to those concrete tactile objects for them so it's interesting okay this is a heavy quote but I have to throw this in too because we were just talking about the addiction it's not an exaggeration it's actually a clinical reality and she talks about um some studies there But the quote that really, another one that really hit me was, uh, as adults, we may choose to mess with our minds and gamble with our own neurology, but I've never met a caring parent who would knowingly risk his or her child's future in this way. And yet we're handing these devices 
that we use the language of addiction to describe over to our children who are even more vulnerable to the impact of everyday use on their developing brains. In our enthusiasm to be early adopters and to give our kids every advantage, are we putting them in harm's way? And we do jokingly talk about, oh, you're so addicted to your phone, I'm so addicted to my phone, and it's not really um, just an exaggeration or a joke, it's reality. So we really have to think about it. What did you think about attention-based learning deficits, the increasing number of children with those, and what did you think about it? I want to know. I thought it was interesting because so much technology and being immersed the way we are, we may actually be creating a, she called it a cadre of children with environmentally induced attention deficit because of the incessant obsession promoting hold that digital distractions pose for a child. Incessant so obsession to, promoting. But, do you, I mean, we both work in class. I see it. Do you see it? I see, I see it. it. I don't just, I, I okay, I sound old like we joke about that because we're, you know, we didn't grow up with digital devices, but I see it with teachers too. I mean, I see teachers yeah. carrying those phones around and it's like they can't, they're on their phone, you know, they're checking stuff. They yeah. know they're not really supposed to do that, but they are. And that worries me too because I'm thinking, put it away, lock it up if you really can't. Now I'm really well, going to sound think. old, but I hear people say, well, I have my kids at the babysitter. Well, you know, we did that too without having the phone. They can always call you, you know, <laughs> you're not somewhere where you can't get a phone call through to your school in your classroom. I don't know. I don't think it has to do with the safety that they're claiming as much as it has to do with them comforting themselves with something that they don't know how to do without. I would definitely agree with that. I'm just putting it out agree. there. Yeah, I'm just putting it out there. And uh, I'm, I well, use my I, phone, too. I can't say I don't, but... Well, yeah, and I, talk, I, I talked about it last week, too, and about how 10 minutes after waking up, I have my phone, I'm on my phone. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at checking what's going on on Twitter, what's on Instagram. I mean, those <laughs> are not necessary things for me to do when I first wake up. So it still it did help me to kind of pause and, and, and think about what I'm doing and why I feel the, the need to check it immediately like why is that the first thing I want to do when I wake up but and and having and having a child who has attention deficit as diagnosed yes that environment right it hurts my heart because children who have that have to have certain structures in place and it, it's a difficult road for them so so to think that creating a cadre of children with environmentally induced attention deficits hurts my heart it's it's something that can be because I see that as something that can be avoided where I'm, I'm not sure I mean whatever people's opinions are I'm not sure children that are diagnosed with that I don't think there's an avoidance there you know it's, it can be avoided it, ha it has to be dealt with so yes and there there are accommodations and things that, that children with that have to make and yeah and their families have to make so yeah that that kind of hit home and 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 I, I just you know see that in classes and and I've talked about this before, but students not being able to get through a, a whole book that you're reading aloud. They, they can't sit there. They don't have, you know, they don't have the stomach muscles, the, the attention, the, they, they can't sit through a story. We're looking for these shorter stories to accommodate the shorter attention spans. And, and I think in doing that, we're, we're losing a lot of That's true. Yeah, we are, we're adapting to that, to that attention span. And then that is just then that gives them even less chance to use concentration and focus. And then that feeds yeah. the problem. Yeah, 
short, there's great stories with, with a lot of opportunities for, you know, deep, deep knowledge, deep discussion. But I think we, we miss out if, on those just classic stories and read alouds in the picture because we just either don't have the time or the kids just can't do it. They don't have the stamina that they need, so... The stamina, yeah. And she calls it continuous concentration or deep focus, and we call it stamina. You know, it's the same thing, right? That's what we talk about, building stamina in our kids. Um, She talks about working memory again in this, and she talks more um, in depth about it. But I thought that her analogy, this is one of the best ways I've heard someone describe working memory and the role of it. It's like a digital news crawl slithering across Times Square. It's constantly being updated, never more than a snippet, and no looking back. So when you think about that constantly scrolling band at the bottom of the news screen, she was saying how like you can't pay attention to what's on the screen, the news screen, and then look at that news crawl. You can't look at those things at exactly the same time and know what each of those things is doing, right? So that's why we try to get our kids fluent with sight words and we try to get them fluent with phonics features so that they don't have to use that working memory so much so that they can pay attention to the bigger picture. And she was talking about how the working memory is one of the most important variables in learning literacy and numeracy, but yet it looks like a change could be occurring with working memory, with the use of digital devices. Agreed. But, but on a more positive note, she does say that being able to move your attention multiple streams of information and being able to, to handle multiple sources yes, of information. Yes, you're right. She did will, say that, will yes. Will right? Right. That will be important for for jobs in the future. Yeah, she did give us a possible positive outcome, yes. And that yes. that's being discovered, researched, and there's more to do there, but yes. And I think that that makes sense that that would be an outcome of having to do that. Yes. Like, I think about last time you and I talked, I had my iPad, I had my Kindle, and I had this phone and I and that we're talking on, and I also had my computer all open at the same time, and I was moving between all of those without getting lost. And as we were reading, I thought, there was a time when I really couldn't have done that, because I wouldn't have known how to use all of these tools that fluently, and how to find different things in different places on these different devices. Well, and Maggie, you have even talked about how your laptop is a Mac, your phone is Android. Right. And how actually like that because you're able to learn mm-hmm. apps on, on different types of devices. I think it is a skill set that students could use later that will actually, you know, be a benefit. The only media. This can be the only form of reading that they do. And knowing about it is not an easy thing to do. You have to look for information. You have to be able to be a critical reader to find the information about not losing the ability to be a critical reader. It's ironic. I thought she was real honest, too, as a researcher when she said that, I'll just read it. She says, what remains missing in all the growing research to date is the smoking gun, so to speak, depicting the specific developmental relationship between and among continuous partial attention, working memory, and the formation of deep reading processes. So they don't know what is the link there. Like, how is that happening? They're seeing relationships, but they don't know exactly what is making that attention and affecting the memory and the deep reading. I know as a scientist, you have to be able to articulate that. You have to be able to prove that. The work right now, I think, is just still in the early stages. You well, can't... because it, it's 
relatively new. You know, we're in the thick of it right now, I feel like, so we might not know for a while. But um, but I was just going to say, reading, you know, and, and reading some of these things in these in these letters, uh, it just, it takes me back to my school. Like, I just, I see my, I see the kids in the room. I know. You know, and I, I see some of this behavior, and it makes sense. Where, where we work, Mary, our, our school district has a whole department on engagement, right? That's, yeah. That's, that's the whole department's job is how to engage students in a lesson. And it's like, wow, do we, have we always needed that? I mean, there's always been, you know, what they call attention grabbers or, mm-hmm. or something at the beginning to grab their attention. But to have a whole department designated just to engaging <laughs> students through instruction is, wow, that's, um, and the fact that it's needed. I hadn't thought about that that way before. Wow. When I hear you say that, I guess I just took that for granted as, yeah, we need kids to be engaged. But when you're saying it the way you're saying it, yeah, that is a change. Yeah. And I think we're fooling ourselves if we think that technology is going to solve it because they, we learn quickly. They get bored on with technology quickly too. Like they're not going to sit there and do a 10 page paper um, gladly with lots of citations and good solid research just because they're doing it on a Google Doc, you know, like they quickly tire of the tools that we present to them. So, oh, uh, how, how many times have you walked by and they're supposed to be working on one thing and they have another tab open? You know, always, <laughs> all the time. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, yeah. Uh, who could blame them? I see teachers do that too during faculty meeting. I must say, <laughs> never me and never you. I know we would never do that. Well, our time is about up. Um, is there anything you want to say to kind of wrap it up? We talked about analogy a little bit, and we've already kind of talked about how you know you have to have the background knowledge for you know something known to something new, and 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 I think just keeping that in mind that that attention, that memory together kind of help build. Those are two things that help build that background knowledge that's uh-huh. needed. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I did find interesting is the, the makers of Google, Apple, and Facebook is a quote in here that has so much impact on how millions of people around the world spend their attention. And we've talked about this before, how young readers just have a place to go and how they can just they don't really have to, and you talked about this, how they don't really have to remember anything because they can just go back to Google or go mm-hmm. back to where they read it yeah, and just look for it again to where when we were learning, we, you know, the encyclopedia may have been at the library, so we either had to write it down or we had to retain it in some way because mm-hmm. we might not have been able to have the opportunity to go back and look to where we received that information. But more importantly to me to remember that they do have to read deeply so that they're able to form their own opinion. Mm-hmm. And they have to have the facts. So just going to one source and, and saying, oh, well, I read it here, and I only read it from one source for two or three minutes, and I didn't go any deeper than that, and I'm going to form my opinion on that, um, worries me for young readers I want them to be able to be able to read deeply multiple sources and then form their opinions from there yes agreed and I just noticed Alicia that I've been trying to talk to you about this fellow and his name is in this chapter and I just realized it's the same 
man that I heard give a TED Talk. His name is Tristan Harris, and he worked in Silicon Valley, and his knowledge was about what's called persuasion design principles. Okay, so this is the one I was telling you about who spoke out after he did that. He said that um, it, ethically, he didn't feel like he could do it anymore because the apps and devices were, he was, part of his work was being able to intentionally um, select some design principles to addict the users. And so if you ever want to hear a good TED Talk about that, his name is Tristan, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, Harris, and then there's another man named Josh Elman, E-L-M-A-N, who supports Tristan's work, and he also talks about and compares the um, similarities of the tobacco industry with addiction-forming nicotine, getting people to smoke before they knew all the dangers. So those are just two guys who are basically coming out of that Silicon Valley setting and saying, here's what's being done, and you need to be aware of it. You know, you just need to know about it so you can decide. We'll have to put that um, TED Talk somewhere on our, maybe in the notes or the description of the podcast, we can add that. Yeah, and we can put it on our page. Yeah. On our podcast page as well. I don't think we're helpless, and I think that's what the rest of this book is about. I, I don't think we're helpless. We know the brain is plastic, right? It has plasticity. And uh, those studies that we talked about earlier about kids in poverty and with all the um, hormones from stress, that that can be combated with strategies for teachers can learn how to reverse that. So that's always the good news. The hard work you have to put in to do that, that's the difficult thing. But I think it's the same idea with this. I think we're not just helpless victims. We can make decisions about this. Right? Yep, exactly. Do you feel like that? Oh, I, yes. And I think she's saying that too. Yeah. You know, for, yeah, for sure. Whether, it, whether it's on the screen or, or on paper, I think the gist of it is you, you have to be able to read critically in order to, to gather and retain the information. So it's, mm-hmm. it's important. I think she's just explaining how the digital world is kind of changing the reading brain. But that it's not a good or, you know, there's pros and cons to all of it. It's heavy. And I think that reading this chapter especially, you know, it's not not a light read. This chapter, I think, got really serious about some of the things that can happen that are negative if you don't learn and pay attention to what's going on with digital devices and kids. The good news is... The next few chapters are about what to do, what we need to make sure our kids are getting, and some things that we can really uh, do to help. So, that's... It, it, just, it just like anything else. There, there has to be a balance in everything. And, yeah. Um, moderation, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we're always talking about. Moderation. Right. And that's what it makes it about. Yes. The digital world's great, but not 100% of the time. Right. You, need, you know, for purposes and... Right. And there's still plenty of people who will say, whatever, I I love my phone, you know? I think just like there's people who still decide to smoke cigarettes knowing all the physical dangers of doing that, and they still choose, knowing that, they choose to do it. So 
it's just that when we have kids and we're responsible for them and they're coming into our settings and we need to know and we need to advocate because we don't want to be doing something that we're going to be sorry that we did later because we just didn't know or didn't speak up. So on that, right. Yeah. Right. And, if, and we have to, and if we understand why things are happening or the behaviors are happening, then, then we're more likely to have solutions. Right. Exactly. Like so, yeah. Yeah. Not All right. Better. Well, um, I think we should okay. wind this up and say goodnight. Thank you to our listeners for hanging in there with us. Again, the book is Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital Age by Marianne Wolf. She's also on um, Twitter. I don't know if she's on any other social media platforms, but you can find her on Twitter. She also has some really good talks on Reading Rockets, the website. I'm sure there are some others, but that's the one that I saw recently. I think it's a great read, and you should grab it and read along with us. So that'll be it for this evening. All right. It was fun. It was fun. We'll catch you next week. Bye. Bye.